Good evening. You are here. We're welcoming you to East is East on April 28, 2008, 2009, to a QSO and VSO RV get together. Welcome. I know there's an Irish man amongst you. Come on. Tell me about yours. Come on, Athena. You guys were together in time. I often say that QSO and VSO are great dating agencies. But these guys were hooked up before they went, right? Come and tell us the story of how you, not how you hooked up, but how you went. Because you both can come up here. Give us a break. Okay. I'd love to hear Please, come on. What's your name again? Nancy. Nancy, yeah. <coughs> Thanks, Nancy. Yeah. Check the liability clause, Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't say what you were saying. It's just fine. <laughs> well, talk about hooking up. Um, <laughs> Actually, I, I hope I'm welcome here. I'm, I'm actually a, a Peace Corps volunteer. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Shame! Um, but uh, ended up in Thailand, uh, in the town of Sarin, where there were many other volunteers. There were lots of Peace Corps volunteers, as well as this organization called QSO, which I really didn't know what that was. And then there was also some VSO volunteers, which... I had no idea what that was either, being an American, very egocentric, um, but became best friends with this guy called Ed from this organization called QSO. And uh, as a volunteer, the, the local government agencies that we were working for tried to kind of make sure that we all met each other. So he was working in the government uh, office in town, and I was working at the agriculture office out of town, so I had to come in from out of town and meet this engineer. Well, I was actually a 4-H extension agent, um, working with mothers groups and uh, 4-H groups, getting them, um, trying to secure money for small projects. So I met, I came into the uh, office met this guy who was very busy, very engineer-like, and <laughs> didn't have time for this American who was an actress that had come over to teach these Thai farmers how to grow rice, as if. And, uh, so we actually didn't really like each other very much. Um, this guy, Ed, Canadian, you know, who had his own motorcycle already and knew everything about motorcycles and I had never ridden a motorcycle but uh, anyway he helped me out taught me how to ride kept working on it long story short became best friends he was going to go back home um, to get his master's degree I wasn't really sure what I was going to do um, I was thinking about extending, but I knew that if I didn't go back to North America, I was probably going to lose this one, and he was one that I didn't want to get away. Wow. So we came back, did our master's degrees, uh, got married, and here we are 
20 years later, three kids later, and uh, hopefully we'll be going overseas again oh. after the kids are out of the house. <laughs> quite a few hookup stories, I must say. There's a lot of partners that served overseas. I think you find common interests. You have common interests. And I think, Nancy, you have common interests. You have a common interest story with your husband of meeting. So is there anyone else who would love to tell a story? There's so many of you. It's such this. Oh, yeah, come. I have all the overseas issues, so can I just use my geography in a rural high school and I didn't really feel that this was really doing contributing very much to the country and I went and uh, I was concerned that I wanted to do something else that I thought would be of more value I was talking to the, the local dentist just casually one day about what some of the problems were and he said one of the major problems in this area uh, are broken teeth. There are a lot of people suffering from broken teeth. And I asked him why. And he said, because the people in the town drive their rice on, on the road. And trucks drive over the rice. And it gets full of little stones. And then when they, they cook it up, they sell it in the market and they cook it up. It still has all these little stones in it people bite on and they break their teeth and and we thought well what could we do and he said you know if we could get 50 bags of cement we could make a rice drying platform and that's a bunch of there were some Irish volunteers myself some Peace Corps because uh, there were a lot of different agencies and we managed to scrape together enough money to buy 50 bags of cement we built a rice drying uh, platform. Uh, the local dentist reported, oh, I think it was about six months later, that the incidence of broken teeth had dropped by about half. Uh, this was in 1975. I went back to Zimbabwe via, uh, what's the name of that? It's, uh, Google Earth, and I looked at my village on Google Earth, and that rice platform is still there. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that's my story. <laughs> All right, we've got the traveling microphone, so coming around. Bonita, come on, tell me. The only story, I was in Uganda, and I loved to meet Amita because that's where she came from, too. I was at Dr. Obote College in the north, and the year was 1967. We were opening a new dormitory, so what you do is invite the president to come up. So Dr. Obote, the president, came up, but he had to bring the head of the army with him, who was Idi Amin. So there we are at the opening ceremonies for the dormitory for about 300 miles north of Kampala. We're standing near the teachers next to the president and so on, and I realized... I was sitting in Idi Amin's chair. So I said, excuse me, I've got your chair. And he looked at me. He said, that's okay, he'll stand. And he had one of these kind of racing sticks. 
So he just put in this pole and kind of leaned against the, the big fellow that he was, and he let me sit in his chair. So from then on, I have always followed his career very closely. We'll never forget the day I sat meeting him in his chair. Um, I refuse to be outdone. Uh, I was in Francistown in 1960, 61, and I went up there for Christmas because I'd met someone who invited me to their family for Christmas. And I arrived in Bulawayo, and I was greeted by Joshua Nkomo and Robert Mugabe, in Bulawayo, and they were there for some rally, and a year later, the Masabili were all being massacred. Oh my gosh. Oh. Alright, are you two going to sort out who's going to tell the story now? There we go. Ooh, Come on. Goodness. Okay. Uh, um, okay, so, I don't know if everyone can hear me. Maybe. Let me just put that down to share and relax. You can read
commonly spoken language, and we all got shipped to this one town in Hua Hin. I don't know if, if that's where. Yeah, the town where they send all of the VSO, QSO, and in fact, we all did our training together. So this might be an interesting story that even in the 90s, we were doing a lot of cooperating with the VSO volunteers. And they actually became some of our best friends, um, especially the VSO. And, and in the end, there were also some New Zealand volunteers as well who trained with us. The Peace Corps, I'm sorry, had their own camp somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> they, they outnumbered the Canadians and the, the VSO about 30 to 1 or something like that at the time. Um, so we had a wonderful kind of um, gradual uh, immersion into the Thai culture um, by learning language with uh, some, some uh, you know, Thai language uh, teachers. And what would happen is we were in these lovely little um, villas on the beach, and you know it was quite nice, actually, learning Thai there in the morning. And then off we would go thinking, oh, we can count to ten now, and we can go into the market and you know barter or buy stuff now. And um, at the time, Hua Hin was this sleepy little town with uh, one market. Um, there were between where we were staying and the, the market itself, there were maybe three little roadside shacks that had, you know, were restaurants or little bars. Um, and you could get on a songtail, which is like a little sort of rural taxi to get into town for maybe about three baht. And we'd go in and try and practice. And who again at the time was fabulous because, again, there were very few tourists who went to that side of Thailand. It wasn't like Phuket or where there was a lot of exposure with, with foreigners. So again, you go into the market and right away you're the center of attention and people are trying to figure out what you're doing here and you're speaking Thai. Oh, oh. And it's the funny thing is, you know, we thought we were speaking Thai. <laughs> <laughs> and the locals would just be looking at us like, yeah, no. <laughs> and one of the funny stories is that we were, you know, doing our, our language training with the VSO volunteers, and we had a, um, a Scottishman named Keith who uh, came with from Glasgow, I think, very thick Glaswegian accent, and trying to speak Thai in a Glaswegian accent. <laughs> it was quite fun. And uh, in Thai, um, it's a tonal language, so you can say the same word, and if you inflect it at the end, it means totally something else. And usually, if you change the the tone, it means a swear word or something really dirty, or you know, usually it's some kind of genital. <laughs> and so, um, poor Keith, you know, we were going to the local restaurant, practicing ordering food. We just learned how to order different dishes. So he really wanted to try this new dish called kayatsai, which is a stuffed omelet with different pork and vegetables. And uh, he goes up to the counter and says, ka, ka, he's like trying to be very polite, ka, ka, kayatsai, nung ti. And the woman just looks at him like, <laughs> <laughs> looking back at us, he's like, what did I order? And someone goes, Scott, you just ordered stuffed shit. <laughs> and, but that, that's kind of the, the thing that happened. <laughs> and, and after a while, I think Huahin probably developed, you know, quite um, a reputation for having these foreigners 
you know, trying to practice Thai and just, they, they eventually started to figure it out, I think, by probably the late 2000s. Now, Neil and I, since coming back from Thailand, uh, got married, we now have two children, and two years ago, we went back to Hua Hin. Oh. Unrecognizable. Uh, our sleepy little town, which had those three little shacks between where we stayed and the one market in town, is now just wall-to-wall um, resorts and Tesco's and all kinds of mini malls and shops. So it was a little bit disheartening to see that, um, and extremely touristy. It was uh, quite a big change. So you know, nothing stays the same, I guess, in, in the, the world. And it was uh, interesting to see that. But we still have very fond memories of uh, Ban City Moon and uh, and Thailand. Wow, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> That's excellent. Anyone else have a story to tell? I'll bring it around. I think there's... You were going to tell it? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, thanks, Nancy. I think I should tell you a little bit, actually, about my husband who I met in India because I was a volunteer in India at a time when um, family planning was had started. Uh, I think it had been going for about three years and we did have some uh, volunteers there ahead of me. But I went as, the, as a, a young nurse and at that time I should tell you that in Canada in public clinics, family planning was illegal. And actually, Canada had stopped the World Health Organization 10 years before from helping India establish family planning program because the delegate said, if this goes ahead, Canada will withdraw from WHO, World Health Organization. So I went there ostensibly as a a um, public health nurse instructor to replace uh, a nurse who has gone, gone to Calcutta to, uh, to learn about public health. So here I had zero experience and knowledge about family planning. So I had a steep learning curve. They taught me everything there. I did many other things, uh, health education and nutrition, applied <coughs> nutrition and all those kinds of things. And um, <coughs> lots of different experiences. And then after my two years, I, I was uh, hired to take over as the director for the health program for the health volunteers uh, in the Delhi office. And backtrack just a bit. During our orientation, um, we had about, I'm thinking about your language training, I would love to have had that because I had to learn Hindi just on the job because it, uh, you had to be effective, you had to speak the language in the villages where you're taking students out on home visits in villages, so you needed to have it. We had, I think, something like six weeks of orientation, but ultimately, for a variety of reasons, we didn't get very much um, uh, language training. And so, I, when I got to 
India, I took this uh, job and learned and got a teacher locally and so on. Then I went on to, uh, to Delhi and then I was traveling all over the country to visit different volunteers and also to evaluate the requests from different agencies, governmental and non-governmental, um, for volunteers from, from CUSO. <coughs> Many of our volunteers did marry fellow CUSO volunteers and also BSO volunteers. <laughs> So it was a very happy time, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, um, I guess I was only in the job for maybe about six months when there was a big conference on this Society for International Development came, um, uh, had a big conference there, and my predecessor had actually signed me up for that conference. She assumed that I should um, want to go to that. So I did. And as it happened, um, so did my husband, who had just joined CEDA. And uh, the High Commission had a big party for him. And of course, CUSO volunteers or CUSO staff were always invited to these parties. So I was really tired and I was about to leave. And then our, um, the, the High Commission uh, advisor, so, so just a minute, I want you to meet Louis Perenbaum. And so that name rang a bell because, as I told him, oh yes, I remember him. He was one of the few people who said anything sensible at our orientation. <laughs> and so, <laughs> any rate, dear Wayne, he introduced me to Louis and said, Nancy said, you're the only one who said anything intelligent at the orientation. So, of course, he had another look. I'm sure he thought I was terribly intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we uh, agreed to meet the next day at the, um, for, uh, for lunch with the, um, a, a group who were also going to the conference and a number of people that he knew among it, actually, among this group. And then he asked me out for dinner that night. But he thought, um, well, he didn't make a reservation at the hotel where 3,000 people were meeting in this conference. He thought, oh, you know, India is a poor country. I don't need to make a reservation here. Very sort of uh, surprising, given his past experience. However, um, we had a long wait for dinner. In fact, when we went up for dinner, the Maitre D said to him, oh, I'm sorry, sir. We're fully booked. <laughs> <laughs> and so Lewis said, oh, never mind. He said, well, somebody will drop out. Sir, we're fully booked. <laughs> <laughs> and so, at any rate, we had a very long wait, without which we probably would have left about 9 o'clock, and he would have just taken me home and said, well, Miss Sarah, this is nice to meet you. If you're ever in Ottawa, give me a call. I didn't know, I don't think, at that time. I learned later, I think, that he had actually been the first acting executive director of CUSO. He had got it going uh, from uh, 1961, when it first went over, 
as the uh, Canadian volunteers, but that one really had no institutional base. It had, uh, and so when the leader of that uh, decided to go into his PhD, it just essentially ceased. And the CUSO volunteer was chosen as the first executive director when Lewis left. He chose it from Malaysia, Bill McQuinney. And it turned out, of course, that um, Lewis had, he had already a job. He was Canada's first uh, secretary general for um, UNESCO in Canada. And so he took a leave of absence to take this job to get it going. He traveled around the world and talked to uh, different governments to find out if they would take Canadian volunteers. And of course, he he, uh, met with quite a lot of opposition in some countries who felt that we were likely to be very patronizing and they didn't want any of that. They've seen that kind of thing before. However, they agreed that they, they would take the volunteers. And I must tell you that Lewis was an Indian of Indian parents, born in Malaysia, but really grew up in Scotland. As uh, His father was a very well-known uh, physician in uh, Malaysia, uh, highly respected. In fact, his name is up in um, in stone in many places, but in any case, then the, the war broke out, and so uh, he stayed in Scotland, that's where he got his education, and he came to London and to work for World Health Organization of Canada, not of Canada, of uh, the UK at the time. Um, he went to work for the Indian High Commission for a while, and uh, sort of languished there until this job came up. And then uh, World University Service asked him if he would come to become essentially the first the executive director of World University Service of Canada. And so he had a number of different positions and um, after he did that for a while then he uh, went as Canada's first uh, 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 commissioner, uh, secretary general for uh, UNESCO and got CUSO going, and by this time he was poached by the World Bank. And so he spent five years at the World Bank, and the president of CEDA, who knew him, um, had talked to him, and he, he wanted to set up a program for special programs. And this was the first time that governments really funded non-governmental organizations what he wanted he wanted including he wanted to see it happen with industrial cooperation as well but that took a long time but it became a model for other uh, donor countries so that's how uh, (coughs) much experience he had with different uh, organizations and I must tell you that he would be very proud of you Oh, thank you, Ned.